The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of the Premier Dance Network, the only podcast network dedicated solely to the world of dance. And welcome to Pod to Chat with your host, Barry Corellis. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corellis, and you are listening to Pod to Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I'm happy to share my 18 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hello, good day, bonjour. I hope that you are all doing well. I hope that you are all safe and happy and healthy and not losing your mind. Um, it seems like some of the country is losing their mind as everything opens back up, but hopefully people will get used to our new normal and people will calm. CTFO, they will calm the something down, and that would be CTFD, <laughs> um, and, you know, just care about other people and their own mental state as well. Um, so yeah, things are getting better here in New York City. We have not yet opened our uh, our area up or started to reopen, although most of the state has. Um, I think there are like two other regions other than the city that are not reopening yet, but hopefully we will get to that in the next couple of weeks. I'm still fine being at home until I need to be, need to leave. It's really just... What would you rather do? Would you rather like make the mistake and go too early, or would you rather wait till you know? So, um, not gonna get too much into politics with that though, uh, or the politics of that. Um, but yeah, no, the the past couple of weeks, I've actually had a pa- a rough past few weeks, and I I haven't really been quiet about that. I've mentioned it a few times on social media. Um, I think what happened is I I really felt fine the first six weeks. I I already had the skills. Uh, prepared for that. Like I knew how to take care of myself. I knew what it felt like to have your career kind of like pulled from you and to feel very alone um, and how to give myself class and how I just like coping skills um, and different things like that. So I honestly felt pretty fine for the first six weeks, but I've kind of hit a wall after that. So where am I now? I think I am halfway through week nine. I think I begin week 10 on Saturday. So a day after this episode releases will be my 10th week in quarantine. But yeah, so like two and a half weeks ago, I just really hit a wall. Um, I had no motivation. I felt bad. I wanted to sleep all the time. Um, everything was making me angry or moody. Um, and I took some time to really think about it, but, um, I think I've, I think I've figured it out. I am feeling better, better now, even though I still am kind of lazy feeling. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting. I don't know whether to work hard or take a break. And I constantly struggle to feel positive because I don't feel great working hard because I feel like I should be taking a break. But when I'm resting, then my brain is like, oh, you've accomplished nothing. So it's been very interesting. Um, but more so, I also have a theory. I've, I've called it my brain shut off theory where uh, I, I think what happened was with like the craziness and the chaos of everything happening, I, I keep on telling people 
uh, that I've been connecting with. A lot of people that aren't local to New York, they were watching what was happen- happening to us like on TV, but for us, it was happening in real time and it was really, really frightening. Um, so yeah, I, I think what happened was to not completely freak out, to not want to leave my apartment, to, um, be able to survive the situation. I think I shut off a a part of my brain that handles stress. Um, so I was, able to emotionally deal with that sort of apocalyptic feeling of like, am I going to get sick? Are people I know going to die? Am I going to die? Is this the end of the economy? Am I going to be able to put food on the table? Different things like that. Um, So I think that I just shut off that part of my brain and just like took information as it was, but I didn't really allow myself to stress beyond that because it was already stressful enough just being here and not being able to get away from hearing never-ending sirens. Um, Then, like, around week six, we started noticing the sirens dropping off. And I don't mean, like, they were going away. It would be like, oh, one day we'd be like, I haven't heard a siren for ten minutes. That's crazy, which isn't normally crazy, but these days it has been. Um, So once the sirens started to, like, drop off to maybe, like, every once in a while we'd be like, I haven't heard an ambulance in an hour. Um, and then also seeing on the news that we had gone over the, the apex and flattened the curve, something I didn't even know what that meant two and a half months ago. Um, but just getting the information, that sense of like, okay, the, we've been through the worst. It doesn't mean it's over, but we've been through the worst. Um, and we're not constantly reminded of how bad things are with the sound, the auditory aspect of it. I think that the stress part of my brain started to reawaken, um, And I think what happened was I digested all of the stress and I had all of the same stressors of those first six weeks. And, but, but they had, they weren't, well, well, those stressors hadn't been addressed. They were still there. So I think what happened was I couldn't directly address them because they had already passed a lot of those stressors, um, but I hadn't really come to deal with them. And I think that my brain just went crazy and it started to shut down in other areas while I tried to handle that stress. So um, I've done a lot of different things. Like I've changed up my schedule. I've given myself more breaks. If I feel like I need to work more, I work more. Um, if I feel like not working out, I don't work out. Um, if I feel like sleeping until 1130 in the morning, I do if I feel like going to bed at four o'clock in the morning. I do. Um, I, I do try to follow a schedule last week. I actually did impose a schedule, but, uh, and then I just saw if I could follow it or not. And I did about 60% of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that part of my brain shut off and that it has reawakened and that that's part of the reason why I've been so moody. But yeah, one thing I can say is uh, how sick I am of people posting on social media like they have all the answers. Um, <laughs> nobody really has these answers except for the, the, the scientists or the people that this is directly, directly, directly affected. Um, like masks, just wear a mask. I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Oh, well, you wore a mask didn't do anything else or social distance. Yeah. Just social distance. I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but if it does, then all the better. It's, it's like going to a third world country. I've been to Mexico. I've been to a handful of countries in South America and Southeast Asia that are all considered third world countries. Um, they tell you, you can't drink the water. They still provide drinking water. Um, 
and even some of the places they don't recommend that the locals drink the water. Um, they still provide drinking water. So yeah, you can drink the water. Um, are you going to get sick? I don't know. Maybe some people will, maybe some people aren't, but are, are you going to drink the water? Yeah. So it's like, just wear a mask, just social distance. And then once we have more answers, then, then we'll be able to be like, okay, well the masks, they were useless. Okay. Big whoop. You spend an extra $30 on masks. You wore them and, uh, nothing really changed. You, maybe it was a little rough to breathe. My husband and I walked to Astoria park. We, we don't have any parks in our neighborhood. So in order to go to a park, it's about an hour to an hour and a half walk. And we do it, um, for our own mental health. Um, and, uh, a dancer, who I worked with in Seattle, um, reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm, I'm selling masks. Really just the mo- the money is to cover the cost of shipping and the fabric. I'm not really making any money on it. And I like the masks, So I ordered a few, they came, we wore them. They were great. Um, when, at first, when we started wearing them, they started sucking in and pushing out and sucking in, pushing out. Um, it was uncomfortable, but, um, we played with them. We kept on working with them and we found a way to make them work. Okay. So yeah, just don't be lazy. And yeah, like our governor keeps on saying, like Cuomo keeps on saying, I don't wear the mask for me. I wear the the mask. (laughs) It's a spoonerism. I wear the mask for you. So um, I'm not going to preach about this, but I'm just so tired of people preaching (laughs) that I'm preaching. Um, I don't know enough information. I can't give you real answers. And just don't put information out that you read that is not like, verified by a, a proper source different things like that i'm not going to go on anymore about that i could go on but I'm not okay other than that uh what's going on i'm teaching at a virtual summer intensive i believe i am doing the 10th let me look at my calendar here i am teaching on june 10th at 12.30 p.m., I'm teaching a contemporary repertory class. So I'll teach them rep from my, my company, Movement Headquarters. Um, so if you want, you can check out Training Points online. Just Google them and they'll show up. Um, and apparently they've fixed their platform so that you don't have the tie, sorry the sound delays that Zoom has. So you can actually teach musicality. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm also teaching for Broadway Dance Center online on Saturday, May 30th. I'll be teaching a basic ballet class. I don't know if I'll be teaching anything else for them, but that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm also still waiting for determinations on whether I will be traveling to teach in Bellevue, Washington, Spokane, Washington, and San Antonio in August, but I will keep you updated here and on my social media. Cool. Let's go on to today's episode. So today's episode was recommended by one of my listeners and regular students who recently moved to South Korea, Angela. Thank you for all of your recommendations. She gave me a handful, so I'm going to do one of them. Um, Today, I'm going to talk about the biggest mistakes dancers make. Not the one, but the many. Um, This isn't going to be specific to students or professionals. It's pretty much just generalized to dancers. There will be some for both. Um, I'm having trouble with words today. Apparently, I haven't been talking to enough people. My brain's not functioning. Uh, but yeah, I've got a handful of things that could speak to anybody. Um, I've made a ton of mistakes throughout my lifetime and I hope that you make them as well. The only problem with making mistakes is if you don't learn from them and improve upon yourself. Um, there is nothing more frustrating than watching somebody make the same mistake repeatedly, both in the studio and in life. Um, so that's really the only bad thing. Um, so these aren't necessarily, this isn't like a negative podcast. It's just giving information. Um, but I do say uh, that 
making mistakes repeatedly is like punching yourself in the same place over and over again. Eventually, you're going to develop a bruise or worse. So if you keep on hitting yourself over and over again and don't realize the pain you're causing, you're not growing. Uh, Positive mistakes are all about learning through challenge, pain, or misfortune to become a better dancer in person. So here are some of the biggest mistakes I see dancers making. First and foremost, uh, not showing up prepared is a big one. And this runs the gambit from, like I said, recreational, pre-professional, professional, um, and sometimes retired. Yeah, sometimes this means not warming up for a rehearsal. Um, other times it means forgetting dance shoes. Um, those are physical things. But the biggest one here is not showing up emotionally prepared and in the headspace for class and rehearsal. Are you showing up to class ready to focus? Are you entering the classroom with an intention, a focus, corrections already in mind? Yes, it is my job to keep a, a check on the dancer's mental health, but it isn't my responsibility to hold their hand from the beginning of class until the end. Yes, I understand we all have off days, but if every day is an off day, then that might be a problem and you might need to look inside yourself, um, maybe set a, a plan in place, schedule time before class so that you're not showing up at class at the time class is happening or maybe you even need to seek professional counseling outside of of like reaching out to your teachers and asking them for help um a lot of this stuff really just comes down to giving yourself a little bit more time um maybe enforcing something like a no phone uh like no cell phone rule 20 minutes before you're about to start in that way if you're not warmed up, that will give you time to warm up. If you're getting to class, maybe it'll make sure that you leave 20 minutes earlier for class and you're not showing up as class is starting. Um, it, it really, I, I'd say not showing up prepared is a big, big thing. Um, even for like younger kids, like I've had kids show up without dance shoes and I'll be like, okay, well, they'll be like, my mom didn't pack my dance shoes. And that my answer is always, well, this time, this time it's your mom's fault. Um, but now that you know that your mom can forget your dance shoes next time, it's your fault because now you recognize that you actually need to be responsible for your shoes. Um, no 12 year old should not be responsible for their own shoes to be completely honest. Um, especially if you're considering sending your kid away to a summer program, if they can't bring their own shoes to class, then I don't know how they're going to survive five weeks away. Um, all right, next, I have very loose notes today. Uh, like I said, I've been giving myself a little bit more leeway to have a little less structure in my life because I feel like that's what I need. So we'll see if it works. Um, all right. Uh, the best way to get somebody to not want to work with you is to think you can just show up to class for your own purposes. Um, <laughs> that's a mistake. I have had students in open class who have told me that they are there just to dance and don't want any corrections. It it doesn't happen often, but when it does, usually my heart starts racing. Um, <laughs> like I've had dancers be like, no, 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 no. I'm not here for corrections. I'm just here to take class. <laughs> what? That doesn't make sense. Uh, While I stay calm, I am both offended and perturbed by this action. There's no way I'm not going to be offended by this. Unless a dancer comes to me before class and has some miraculous explanation as to why I shouldn't be offering them my insight as their teacher. Um, Yeah, I just don't, I don't think that there's a way to not offend me. 
Um, but yeah, dancers enter a classroom to learn, whether you're a recreational child, a career professional, a recreational adult, um, a pre-professional or anything between, um, even a retired professional, you enter a classroom under the premise that the teacher is there to be a watchful eye and guide to assist you along your journey. Um, now I will say I made this mistake. I was guilty of this at one point. When I was coming towards the end of my my freelance career, I would play the game of being open to corrections and feedback when in reality I wasn't. Um, I do realize that this mindset was because I was completely burnt out. Um, It wasn't me because now I'm open to these things. Um, I mean, it was me, obviously, but it wasn't uh, the core of who I am as a dancer um, because ever since I retired, I'm open again, but at the time I would only listen to Nancy Bielski. I still mostly take Nancy Bielski, but I, even if I don't agree with a teacher, I am still open. Now granted, most teachers, when I go into their studio now know, um, that I am also retired in a teacher. So you do give more leeway. Like for instance, I can't, my, my arabesque can't be super square or else my back goes out, um, pretty quickly. So, uh, I, I don't usually have to worry as much, but um, if a teacher gives me a correction, I will try it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, then I just don't use it once I leave the, the studio. But yeah, um, I thought that nobody knew what was best for me. Um, so I would nod and smile and ignore what they told me. Uh, and if the teacher continued to hound me, then I would mention to them that I had injuries and they would leave me alone. Um, and most of the time, like it would be a legit injury like my back, but every once in a while, I'd just be like, my ankle's really bothering me. And uh, yeah, that would be the end of the conversation. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I realize now that it was more about me than it was about them. Um, uh, it, it's, it just comes down to if you're going to, if, if you're going to go to a class, you have to be open to being in a class. Otherwise, you might as well just go and warm yourself up on your own. Um, I, I do know a lot of professionals that go to class to warm up, and I understand that class is a warm up, and sometimes dancers have longer rehearsal days. But if one approaches a classroom like this, they're they're like I said, they're just better off giving themselves their own barb because um, they want to warm themselves up how they want to, and uh, they're in a classroom with a teacher, like, well, what's the purpose of the teacher? Just go into an empty studio, rent a studio, especially if you live in like a, a bigger city, you can probably rent a, a studio for cheaper <laughs> if, and, and warm yourself up than paying a, a teacher. So not only is it disrespectful, it's really distracting to see a dancer doing their own thing while everybody is focusing as a collective whole. Um, it's really interesting because usually, um, with like say with Nancy Bielski, she's one of my mentors and we've chatted a lot. Um, and I in her class a lot when we're allowed to be in class together. And usually the ones that I see being the most distracting in her class and where it's, it becomes an issue, uh, for her, it's usually the younger dancers. Um, the older dancers, they are usually the more respectful dancers. It's, it's interesting. Um, you would think that the younger ones would be more, uh, like still back in that time of like remembering what it was like to be a student, but it's the ones that are further away from being like the uh, pre-professional students, like the professional students that are really more respectful. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. What's next? Uh, kind of trying to fix mistakes. This is another big mistake. Um, and this is another one that I've done before as well. So you're doing a step, you know, you aren't completely doing it correctly, but it's really not that big of a deal. Like maybe, uh, you don't fully stay attached from going from fifth position up to retire on the way up and the way down. So, uh, you feel it leave and you're like, oh, I missed it. And I'll just, I'll do it next time. So you just let it slide and you tell yourself that you'll take care of it later. Um, I see this happen all the time. Uh, <laughs> other examples, something simple like finishing correctly or uh, putting somebody's leg down in a balance or adagio that drives me nuts. Um, or a million other tiny little things that audiences don't typically see, but just that you know as you're doing it, it's not fully 100% correct. Um, so the way that I explain this in my classes is by talking about throwing away trash in your own home because I know everybody does this. If you're at home and you're throwing away, let's say, like a bag of chips and um, sometimes like you, you just finished eating and the, the top is still kind of open and you go to put it in the trash can and like, say the lid hits it and some a couple like a tiny little crumbs of chips fall on the floor in the process of putting the bag in the trash. Do you are you the type of person that leave the crumbs there um, and say, oh, I'll get them later or somebody else will get it? Or are you the type that picks them up right away? Um, for me, it really depends on the day. Uh, I tend, though, to be the one to pick them up right away. And it's because of this. Um, well, well, I'm getting, I'm getting to that, <laughs> but yeah, so, um, say that, so you do that, you have some chips fall on the ground, then say that throughout the day you throw away a few more things. Um, maybe you were eating and you had a napkin on your plate when you went to go throw the food off the plate into the trash that the napkin falls down. Um, so if you drop it and clean it up, um, while right away, while it might, be a minor inconvenience at the time, you'll you'll generally have a clean floor at the end of the week. But if you drop one thing on the floor and tell yourself that you'll clean it up later, your floor isn't really that dirty. Like if you have like two chip crumbs on the floor, um, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but if that's your mentality, usually it becomes like a more than once a time thing uh, or more than a one-time thing. So you start dropping a few other things on the floor and tell yourself you'll clean it up later. And then in the end, you're going to end up having really dirty, trashy floors. Um, <laughs> the same thing goes for your technique. If you let one thing go, you notice, uh, sorry, if, if you let one thing go that you notice one day, by the end of the month, you're going to have really dirty, trashy technique. Um, <laughs> Uh, winky face, smiley face. Um, but yeah, essentially it's like, if you have the mentality that like, you'll get to it later, are you really going to get to it later? Or is it just going to pile it up or sorry, is it just going to pile up? How, how are you going to work for the most part? It, that's how people work. It's like, Oh, I'll let that go. I'll get it later. And then maybe like later in the day you do pick it up or it's like dishes. My husband always wants us to do the dishes as we're doing, as we're eating. I never do it. And usually by the end of the night, we have no space left in our sink to fill up our Brita water filter so that we have nice cold water in the morning. Um, it's, it's the same thing. Just fix your technique as you're doing it. I know that sometimes we're like, oh, there's so much to think about, but just, just do it. And then you won't have dirty, trashy technique, people. Um, <laughs> All right, this is another one that I've mentioned before. Um, the reciprocity of the teacher-student relationship. Um, the mistake is often that 
uh, students think that it's a teacher's job to inspire them. Um, and yes, it is my job to teach you, but I am, it, it, it is not my job to continually inspire you. It's like, I, I push you. And if you, like the thing I was saying before, if you don't fix the correction that I give you, um, or if you, uh, don't really try you know, you don't really give me your all like I'm not going to want to push you so but that and then you come into class next week and you expect me to treat you the same way that I treat somebody who's working really really hard um no I mean granted like with younger kids it's a little different you sort of have to like find a way sometimes it takes a little bit longer but really by the time that you're 14 years old <clears throat> if if I push you and you don't actively engage in improving, then I'm probably not going to give you everything that I have. Teaching is very reciprocal. Um, if you work for hard for me, I'll work hard for you. If if I'm pushing you and I see you getting like actively taking corrections and wanting to get better, um, even if you're not, I'm still gonna really want to help you. But if you're like really naturally talented and I give you a correction and you don't really try it over time, it's gonna wear on me and I'm gonna start to feel like you're a lost cause. I'm not gonna pay much attention to you anymore. Every student enters my class on equal footing and I want to help everybody. Um, but it's really, really draining to try to push a student who doesn't want it. Um, and obviously a teacher can't make that decision in a very short period of time. Um, it takes more time to cultivate that type of like understanding. But um, I've seen, this hasn't really happened to me, um, but I've seen parents complain to teachers saying like, how come you're not paying attention to my kid? Um, and often this is the case. The student's just not trying and you can only try to inspire them so many times before it becomes draining on you and then you don't feel inspired to inspire anymore. So yeah, um, teaching is a, is a reciprocal activity and it really is this back and forth between the teacher wanting to actively help the student and then the student wanting to get better and then they get better and then the teacher wants to keep on pushing them. Do you hear that bird out my window? It's a new bird. Mostly we just have pigeons here. I get sick of my pit. That pigeon that comes to our window when the sun rises, um, but yeah, oh, there it's gone. Okay. The wildlife of New York City. <laughs> All right. Um, another mistake that, that students make. It's funny. I don't think I have any physical ones here. Um, being in competition with everybody around you. If you do this, you're setting, you're only setting yourself up for disappointment. Uh, not only that, you will be less likely to find supportive relationships and friendships in a very challenging career choice. Uh, I was extremely competitive, competitive as a kid. Uh, in fact, my final year at the school of American ballet, I was most competitive with one of my best friends. We genuinely cared for each other and loved each other. Uh, but we were so invested in being number one in that school that our friendship had multiple weaknesses, which led to a slow breakdown of our friendship. Um, we didn't really have like a falling out. It's just that we lost touch. And I think that because it was such a stressful friendship that we just never tried to reconnect again, even though at this point we live in the same city. Um, the same thing started to happen in my first year uh, as a professional when I was an apprentice with Houston Ballet. My best friend who I had met that year was also an apprentice and we spent most of our time outside the studio together um, 
I mean, in the studio, we were always together because we were also like around the same height, same build and uh, doing the often sort of competing for the same roles. So every once in a while, we would have minor stresses here or there, um, which honestly, I think was a little more for me. Like, I will be honest there. Um, I think that I came from that jazz competition uh, mentality where it was like, you need to shove yourself to the front and be seen because there are going to be hundreds of people in the same room and you need to get be the one person that catches their eye to get the job. Um, and my friend, he, he came from a, a more ballet background. So honestly, I really think it was me uh, more so that was creating those, those stressors. And it was because I was competitive. Um, but yeah, they, they hired six apprentices that year and they fired all of us before starting to hire us into the core. It's a messed up system. I don't know if they still do it, but it was a comp it's a complicated union conversation, but the short of it was that they could only keep apprentices contractually for one year. So they had to either fire you or promote you when they would give out letters of non re sorry, letters of re-engagement. Um, and they didn't want to commit to promoting the apprentices into the core until they knew that they had money in their budget to make them core dancers. So that's why they did that. Um, but yeah, when I found out that my best friend had uh, received a core contract before I was given any information, I had a moment where I had to decide whether to be competitive or jealous or to be happy for him. It's funny because he was actually picking me up from the airport and I was telling him like how an audition had gone. I think I was actually, I think I was coming from Miami City Ballet. Um, but yeah, so I told him it went well, and he was like, oh, well, I, I, I'm glad that that makes me happy. Can I share something that makes me happy? And he told me, and I, something changed for me in that moment. I was genuinely happy for him, and I didn't have an ounce of jealousy, and we're still good friends to this day. In fact, I went down to Houston to, to work with him in a school that he was working at uh, in a company uh, back in 2017. So from that point on, once I joined PMB, I still had moments of, like, competitiveness with my my colleagues but that that waned over the years and what it generally came down to was that I was just competing with myself to make myself better um and then instead I would learn from those dancers around me whom I deemed to have desirable qualities so before if a dancer had a desirable quality that I felt was in line with the quality that I wanted and often that would mean that we were cast in similar roles um, I would feel competitive with them. But then what I, what I realized is that I actually just needed to pay attention to them instead of feeling like I need to like compete with them. I needed to just watch them and take in what they were doing when they did well. Um, and once I did this, once I figured this out, I got exponentially better. Um, I would see a dancer get a role. I would see what the defining qualities of that role was um, or what those, what the defining qualities of that, those, those roles were. And like, that would be things like, for instance, there would be maybe you had to have strong petite allegro to do this solo, or maybe it was a piece where the dancers had a grand movement quality or maybe high extensions, or maybe their movement quality was more fluid. Uh, and what I would do is I would, I would look at those roles and the qualities that define those roles. And I would study the dancers that got those roles. And then, I would see what worked for them and what didn't work for them because sometimes a dancer gets a role to push them and sometimes a dancer gets a role because it's right for them. Um, and yeah, I would see what was working and what wasn't working and then I would try to learn and improve my dancing in this way. Uh, and in, in this, instead of feeling like I had to fight for the same roles by outdoing them, um, I actually was able to almost 
gain some knowledge, even though I wasn't necessarily doing the role and gaining the knowledge of that role, I could gain some knowledge from what they were learning from that role. And then the next time it came around, that would benefit me. And sometimes I would even get that role. So um, yeah, being in competition with everybody around you, it, it seems like that's the right way to do it when you're younger. But really, it's learning from the people around you and being in competition with yourself. Um, it takes some maturity to understand that. Um, but I hope that I explained it well enough that it can at least start you on that path to maybe being able to do that. Now, this is another mistake. Expecting that showing up, that just showing up and paying money means that you deserve things. No, no, and no. <laughs> paying a fee for tuition or class or workshop, um, it means that you've paid for the facility and for the teacher to show up and take you through exercises, give you choreography and share their knowledge. It doesn't mean that you deserve to do whatever you want in class. It doesn't mean that you deserve to dance a solo. It doesn't definitely, it definitely doesn't mean that you deserve the right to tell your teacher or director how to do their job. It is okay to question and to, or to ask questions and to vocalize intentions and wishes. But if you don't get your way, your pocketbook is not a proper defense. I had a parent, I can tell this now because I'm no longer uh, at this, this workplace, but <laughs> this is the craziest thing that happened to me. I had a parent who I, had, I was working with their child on a solo and then for like three weeks, they requested extra private lessons. So I was doing like one private lesson a week. They requested extra private lessons, which meant I was getting paid double what I typically did for private lessons over those weeks. And then the last day of the private lesson, the mother came, was at the door and they're like, hey, how are you? Right before, right before the rehearsal started. And I knew something was up and I was like, I'm good. How are you? And they're like, I'm good. But can I ask you a question? And I was like, sure, of course, uh, I'm always, I'm always available for questions. Um, and this, she started the conversation saying that she wanted her daughter to be in the front of our group dance. Now, the funny thing is, <laughs> well, I'll get to that. Okay. So I, she said that and I said, uh, well, she is in the front and she goes, well, she's not in front the whole time. And I was like, I turned to the, the child because she was there. She shouldn't have been there, but the mother made the choice to block me into a studio. Um, she goes, well, she works so hard and she, and, and don't you think she deserves to be in the front? And I turned to her and I was like, are you in the front? She's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, so I was like, everybody gets to be in the front at a certain point. She's like, well, she's worked so hard and she, I, I think she just really needs this. She needs to be in the front the whole time. And I was like, it's a two and a half minute dance. And I was like, we've already talked about this before because she had, the mother had mentioned it uh, maybe a month prior. And I was like, I, I'm not open to discussing this anymore. And she was like, well, you said that I would answer, that you would answer any question I had. And I was like, but I've already answered this. And I told you the last time it was an inappropriate question. You should not be asking your teachers these questions. And um, a little more went down, but long story short, uh, this 50 something year old woman in her pretty high heels stomped her foot as loudly as she could into our brand new Marley floor. And then she... <laughs> walked into the hallway, went into the private bathroom right next to the studio, slammed the door. Um, so that is now Stompy Mom. Um, don't be Stompy Mom. Stompy Mom is not the person you want to be. Your pocketbook does not allow you to pay for your, your child to do things. Your pocketbook pays for the rental of the space 
and it pays for the knowledge of the teacher to be shared. It doesn't pay for, it's not pay for play. Okay, this is not our uh, United States government. Whoops, not getting into that. Um, but yeah, your pocketbook does is not a proper defense for you being uh, a bad person um, or to manipulate people. So don't do it. Okay, and it happens. It happens frequently. Um, and people don't always have enough money to do that. So, but at the same time, just your general tuition. Um, yes, you have the right to a service. Um, but you do not have a right to getting that service the exact way that you want it, okay? It's like getting a massage for an hour and then asking for your money back. Even if you don't love how the massage was, unless they were unprofessional, you're not going to ask for your money back. Um, okay, moving on. Assuming, like I said, I got loose notes here, people. Assuming that pre-professional and professional careers are built on facts. Oh, I've talked about this before. I'm reiterating it. It's... it's <laughs> This is a mistake. It is not. I've said a million times, art is an opinion-based career. Um, I love the episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when Danny DeVito, Frank, um, when he falls in love with a piece of art at a gallery. I can't remember if he's like going to the gallery. Uh, I remember he's wearing like a white wig and he's pretending to be like really artsy. Um, but then he ends up seeing a piece that he loves and he pays all this money for it. And then he invites the gallery director back to the bar because Charlie is, he did like these awful little sketches and then he like put them up and tries to sell them to her. And she, the, the woman is like, I wouldn't pay a dime for that. It's, they're all pieces of crap, but to you, they might have a lot of value. And he's like, he realizes that he may have paid all this money for this artwork and, uh, She's like, well, I wouldn't, he's like, I want to sell it back to you. And she's like, well, it's yours now. I don't like it. I think it's worth nothing. But to you, it's worth how much you paid for it. Um, same thing with dance. The <laughs> Dance lessons through It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> the best dance in the room isn't defined by anything but the people who are making the decisions. So if you aren't happy with the artistic opinion, making decisions about your training or your career, change something. Um, that doesn't just mean leave. It could also mean change your mindset or have a conversation. Um, it could mean leave, look for a new job, look for a new school. Um, but yeah, I, I've said this a million times, like people don't get promoted because they have achieved A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Um, they get promoted because somebody thinks they're worthy of promotion. Um, it's not like, I mean, sometimes companies do, but it's more for like rehabilitation and uh, safety and strength. They might like measure your joints, your joint flexibility and your range of movement and your, that's the same thing, and um, weaknesses and strengths and then develop like cross training to help you. Um, but it's not like a director is going, okay, well, so-and-so's ankle bends at an angle of so and so many degrees uh, and, but so-and-so their ankle bends two degrees more. So I'm going to promote them. Dance doesn't work like that. It's nowhere close to that. It's far from it. So yeah. Um, a big mistake is just assuming that anything in dance is built off of not anything, but, uh, any, any type of promotion or choice in casting is based off of fact. Um, Ooh, this is a good one. Thinking seniority doesn't matter. That's a major, major issue in dance. Um, and it was a big one. It was a big lesson that I had to learn as well. Um, 
I, I don't know if I've shared this story before. When I danced with Houston Ballet, uh, I used to always stand in the front. This goes back to my competition conversation. I was just saying where I was like, I'm an apprentice. I need to be seen. Um, we were having a men's class and I guess it was like the second month and I was constantly in the front. And um, one of the principals came out to me and was like, you can't always stand in the front. And I was like, I don't understand. I need to be seen. I need to get promoted into the core. I only have one year to prove myself. And he was like, you can't stand in the front. Like, it, you, you just can't do it. You have to be respectful of, of the people that were here before. And I was offended and I didn't understand. And I I, I wish you had explained it to me a little bit more. But um, maybe that's why I'm trying to help you all and explain it to you. Um, I obviously didn't get it until I was more senior that why this was. But many factors go into this. First things first, there is this interesting thing that happens as the dance world progresses. The students coming into their careers are almost always better technically than the most uh, senior than most of the senior dancers in the company. Technique evolves dramatically pretty much every five to 10 years. So many of these, I put this in quotes, kids come in much stronger with greater flexibility, more diverse training, uh, crazier tricks in their in their back pocket and much more. So when you look at a more senior dancer next to a more junior dancer for a moment, you may think that the younger dancers are actually better. Um, but there's more to dance than just how high your leg goes and how bendy your your foot is and uh, all of that. They, they typically are not better. Uh, they have the potential to be, but they also have no idea how the structure of a ballet company works. Many of them get injured for trying too hard or not taking care of their bodies properly, um, whether that means like cross-training or physical therapy or going out and partying on the weekends and not getting enough rest. Um, or they're great in the studio and they collapse on stage or maybe they have great solo skills from performing in, in, in so many competitions, but they have relatively little partner experience. Um, maybe some of them only focus on classical technique and never really tried to learn any other style of dance. So they're only good in one type of role. Um, but often these dancers, they can technique. Uh, sorry, they, they, can, they can technique, but they can't act. And, and as an artist, you need to be able to act. So uh, for all these reasons and probably more, uh, yes, many young dancers are brimming with potential, but they need time to learn how to survive and thrive in this change in environment from school to company. Outside of this, dancers have a tendency to want to hop around companies until they find somebody who likes them. Um, kind of like I was talking about previously, uh, where I was saying, if you don't, <laughs> having the mindset, if you don't like an artistic opinion, change it. Some people are more willing to put in time and other people, they just want to change it right away. Um, but yeah, directors, uh, they want to have a chance to develop a dancer and to let the audience and donor pool get to know a dancer. Uh, these are the two largest groups of support for dancers, artistic and then also financial, leadership and funding audience members. Without either, there would be no company. The more time that a dancer has had with an organization, the more valuable they are beyond just their technique. Uh, they, they draw audiences in just because you think you, just because you think you're a great dancer and you might be, and you step to the center of the stage, it doesn't mean that people are going to feel compelled to watch you. Um, and that's the thing about art. Like somebody could create a masterpiece, like paint a masterpiece based off of, uh, proven tech techniques of painting. Um, and maybe the piece is flat and not interesting. Um, 
but then maybe somebody has absolutely no education in painting and they do something and it draws people in. So yeah, just because you're a great dancer doesn't mean you're great to watch for the audience. Dedicate yourself, work hard, put in the time, build relationships inside and outside the studio and respect those that came before you. And it's one of those things, I mean, you, you hear it and you can hear it and you can hear it, but you actually have to really listen and you have to pay attention and think about it and try to digest it. Um, as a younger dancer, I remembered hearing about seniority and it's one of those age old things where like wisdom should be respected because you don't, you can't, a young dancer cannot have wisdom. Um, they might have wisdom in certain areas of their lives, but to like, as a professional, you have to have years under your belt to have the wisdom of what it actually means to be a performer, what, uh, it means to have longevity, what it means to, uh, interact with an audience on stage and off stage, what it means to build positive relationships, what it means to handle stressors and, and whatnot. So yes, all of that. All right. Another mistake that many dancers make, staying silent. I can't tell you how many times I've been unaware of situations or injuries. If you're unhappy with your current situation, speak up. If nothing changes, then you know that you either have to suck it up or, or move along. Um, for injuries, I can't tell you how many times I've gone in to correct a student physically and halfway through, they stop to tell me they're injured. Or if I'm really pushing a dancer and as they're ex executing something they shouldn't be doing, they go, I really can't jump because I'm injured. I'm always like, what? And then I'm like, why? They just say something. Um, maybe there was a day, maybe there are some teachers who react, but in reality, like you want your dancers to be able to dance. Um, so you should mention something. Um, I guess as dancers, we are in a silent art form and we are sub ten, we, we, we need to be submissive to a degree. So we don't always feel like we can use our voice, but we are in a different day and age and dancers are, are learning to use their voices. So make sure that um, you speak up when you need to. But at the same time, know, know that there is a limit. Um, if you, like I said, if you need something, like if you're unhappy with your current situation, like if you're not happy with casting, you can, and it happens multiple times, you can just be miserable and then eventually burn out and quit. Um, you say that you start to speak up and then nothing's getting better. If you keep on pushing it, you're just going to, you might eventually make the situation worse. So there's like a fine line there where you can, you don't want to stay silent, but then once you start to bring up situations, you can just argue and argue and argue. And in the end, it could make things worse. Um, I'm not going to really talk about this, but I'm currently in a situation where I've brought a few things up. Um, and I, Every time that I bring things up, either nothing is done or it ends up, I, I feel worse off for actually bringing them up. So what I've gone to is the point where I now have to make the choice to whether to I'm going to suck things up or if I'm going to move along. Um, so I guess we'll figure out what happens with that in the future. But that's as much as I'm going to say about that at the moment, because it's not the right time to share that information. Um but yeah, so I, I do this all the time, um, and it's a really valuable tool to know when to speak up, how to speak up, how many times to speak up, how to assess the response to you speaking up, and then to know when to stop speaking up. <laughs> all right. Okay. 
I think I've got one more. Okay, assuming that one teacher technique has all of the answers and everybody else is wrong is one of the biggest mistakes. The reality of this is nobody is wrong. <laughs> we have come together as an artistic culture and made decisions over the years that have helped form our culture. Some were absolutely necessary. For instance, I would have never wanted to be the first handful of dancers to put on a pair of point shoes. The aesthetics of point were derived out of safety, at least the initial aesthetics. I'm sure that if uh, human anatomy could stand on point with sickled feet, that that may have become what would be considered beautiful. Um, but it doesn't work. And most of the first dancers on point likely sprained their ankles when they were learning how to get up on their toes. Um, and they realized like every time somebody sickled that they sprained an ankle. So it's like trial and error. So um from there, maybe a coach preferred what a bowed ankle looked like, like that banana arch um, versus like the bird claw of a ginched foot. So uh, that became technique and there were fewer people making technique back then. So that became the foundation for all techniques. But then other people started to branch out and make their own decisions. But yeah, so once dancers figured out the safety of technique, everything from there just became aesthetic preference. Um, do you look straightforward in quasi? Do you turn your head to the audience or do you turn the head and tilt the head? Or do you look down to the supporting arm? Um, these are all choices and each technique has its options. Um, I remember as a child, Likalani Brown, she's formerly of New York City Ballet, um, we became friends. I think we first met at Youth America Grand Prix and then we kept on running into each other at multiple auditions because she lived in D.C. I was in Philly and most of the auditions were either in New York or, or D.C. Um, but she had been training at the School of American, uh, sorry, the School of the Washington Ballet and the two of us had gotten into the School of American Ballet for the summer and her teacher forbode her from attending the School of American Ballet. And I remember being like, why would they do that? SAB is like considered one of the best schools in the world. Um, and she told me that her teacher believed that they destroyed beautifully trained Vaganova dancers with their awful mannerisms. Um, it's funny because uh, she ended up going to the summer intensive and I was there too. And so this was an opinion, but on the other side of the conversation, when I went to SAB for the summer, I got stuck in an elevator with the former New York city ballet director, uh, Peter Martins, or I guess he was ballet master in chief. Um, but Peter Martins, he, uh, I got stuck in the elevator with him after he had taught our class. Um, and during that class, he trashed Russian training multiple times. Um, even though the foundation of School American Ballet under Balanchine was actually mostly Vaganova teachers. Um, but yeah, we ended up in the elevator together and I was, uh, it was just a moment. I, he asked what school, there were three of us in the elevator and he asked what school we were coming from. He asked one, he asked the other, and then he looked at me and I like sheepishly, like I, I questioned whether to open my mouth or not, but I sheepishly mentioned that I was coming from the Kirov Academy of Ballet and he kind of like awkwardly stepped back and apologized for what he had said. Um, but yeah, there is no way to say that something is right or wrong, uh, when it comes to technique or choices on stage unless it is like anatomically destructive otherwise it's just an opinion um and that's the thing about ballet a lot of people say this is the only way to do it i i saw a teacher teaching a virtual class um online and they uh wrote in the comments like what is the proper way to do a fondue uh, to teach fondue to an eight-year-old and like all these people were coming in and he would be like nope and then like a couple days later i saw uh another status and he was like tearing down teachers and i was like here's the thing if it is anatomically destructive 
yes, it's incorrect because you're harming, you're physically harming the students. But um, a lot of other things are just choices. As long as you can get a student to be proficient um, and able to go back and forth between styles, then you're doing a good job. There is no right or wrong. Um, what I tell people is, uh, if you don't like somebody's opinion, just try to educate yourself as to why that is their opinion or find somebody with a different opinion. Um, but yeah, it, in reality, so many people get so defensive. I mean, it's kind of like what's happening out in the world right now. It's like, this is the only way to do things. And it's not true. As long as you're not harming anybody, then there are multiple ways to do things. Um, the problem is when you are potentially harming people, then maybe you should do that thing. Wow, how did this come full circle to me going from talking about dance technique to talking about wearing face masks and social distancing? Um, that was unexpected, but that's where we are. Um, so yeah, don't assume that one teacher has all the answers or that there is only one technique. Uh, I see this a lot in Russian Russian dance culture um, because they take so much pride. And having pride is a great thing, but also having understanding and acceptance of others <laughs> is a very important thing as well. All right. Maybe it's the most important thing. So yeah, those are my biggest mistakes that dancers make. Um, I could sit here and talk about technical mistakes technical mistakes uh, until the cows come home. But in reality, technical corrections are personal and different for every student. Uh, for the most part, it's hard to generalize about physical corrections. I would really just be, I could go on for hours and hours. I've almost gone on for an hour just with this stuff. But yeah, with, with physical corrections, um, too, so many, so many, so many, um, and too many to generalize. So I'm not going to. All right. So yeah, I'm curious, what do you think that are the, the biggest mistakes that dancers make, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, whether it's working with other people, what do you think? If you want to share with me, please feel free to go onto my social media and send me a direct message, or you can send me a, an email through my contact pages on my websites. Um... Other than that, please stay safe, stay healthy. Hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend um, and make good choices, people. And just remember, wouldn't you rather like just hold on a little bit longer than regret? I mean, we don't know anything, but you will know if you kill somebody. <laughs> I know that sounds, that laugh afterwards made it sound like I wasn't as serious, but it's one of those things like, just take a little longer. Don't be afraid to to be patient. Don't be afraid to look silly wearing a mask. Don't be afraid to just have a couple more days away, a couple more weeks away. We'll all be better for it in the end. All right. I'm going to end on that note. And hopefully on that note, you will listen to my pod chat talking dance again. And you will not uh, sign off from listening forever. Because I don't usually t- talk politics on here that often. So... With that, I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod the Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me on my website contact page at www.barrycorollis.com. Again, that's www.barrycorollis.com. Uh, you can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcast or to book masterclasses in ballet or contemporary technique. 
photography or speaking engagements or virtual classes. Um, I also have a company, Movement Headquarters Ballet Company. We just launched back in February and we will get back into things as soon as we can. And you can find out more information about our company at www.movementhqballet.org. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcast on the Premier Dance Network. If you would like to see what I'm doing in my everyday life or to see where I'm choreographing teaching, uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, where my name is B. Corollis, or Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to check out my blogs. I have Life of a Freelance Dancer, and you can find that at lifeofafreelancedancer.blogspot.com. I wrote on there for five years about working as a freelance artist and independent contractor traveling the nation. Um, I also have Dancing Offstage. You can find that at dancingoffstage.wordpress.com, and I wrote on there about the post-performance careers of professional dancers. I also have two YouTube channels. You can find my choreography at B. Corollis by going to youtube.com, going to the search bar and typing in B. Corollis. Um, and you can also see my company's YouTube channel by going to Movement Headquarters. Thanks for listening in to Pot of Chat. I hope you return two weeks from this Friday to talk dance with me. And remember to go out and support your local dance scene.